Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You would please take out your Bibles now and turn in your Bibles in the New Testament to the book of Acts and chapter number 6. Acts chapter number 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible. Back part, turn to page 96, and you would be at Acts chapter 6. There was a time when Jesus was on the planet, and he was interacting with Peter and the disciples, and he made a prediction to them. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. A prediction that Jesus made of something that he was going to do. But that doesn't mean there wasn't going to be opposition to that. And a person by the name of Satan, in conjunction with the world system in the flesh, has chosen to oppose what Jesus wants to do, which is to build his church. And we know that Satan has tactics, and he likes to use certain tactics to oppose what Jesus is building. And one of the tactics that he uses to oppose the building of the church is to bring outside pressure on the church, often in the form of persecution. And the goal in doing that is he wants to silence the gospel. He wants us as believers to sort of lose our nerve and to chicken out on sharing the gospel message. Another tactic that he likes to use is to inject internal corruption into the church in the form of hypocrisy. And his goal in doing that is to discredit the gospel. And then a third tactic that Satan likes to use in opposing the building of the church is to stir up dissension in the church, to create conflict in the church. And his goal and motivation is to distract us from the gospel. And it's interesting, when he seeks to do that, to stir up dissension and conflict, it actually can start over very little things. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who was one of my professors in seminary, liked to tell the story of a church in Dallas. And what happened in that church is the church decided to split. There were two factions in the church. And even though they were splitting, both of them wanted the church property, so both of them went to the civil courts and filed a claim for the church property. But when they went there, the judge said, this doesn't really belong in civil court. You need to first go to your denominational authorities and allow them to decide this. And so there were, in that denomination, a number of hearings, and eventually one of the factions was awarded the church property. And the other faction then had to go and find some new property for their church. What's interesting about all of that is during the hearings, they discovered what had started the entire squabble. It actually traced back to a church dinner. And at that church dinner, an elder was served a smaller slice of ham than the child next to him. And that's actually what started the whole thing and resulted in a church splitting apart completely. Of course, that made the newspapers in Dallas, 
and distracted, obviously, the church from the gospel message and even the community from the gospel message. Now, that's Satan's tactics, and we've already seen some of those tactics in our study of the book of Acts. We've already seen him bringing outside pressure in the form of persecution on the church. Last week, we saw him seeking to inject eternal, internal corruption into the church in the form of hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira. Today, we're going to see him using that third tactic, and that is to stir up dissension and conflict in the church. We've been involved in a series of messages that's going to cover really the first third of the book of Acts entitled Seeds. And this whole idea of plant, scatter, grow is really the outline of the book of Acts. And we've subtitled this series, The Acts of Jesus Through the Church. And the title that we have today for our message is this, Ministry is a Team Game. And we want to look at the first seven verses of chapter six. If you have your Bibles open, I would invite you to follow along as I read these seven verses. Notice it says in verse one, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word." The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, let me give you an outline of these seven verses. This is just really the flow of thought here. What we're going to see is that in verse 1, the issue surfaces. And then we're going to see in verses 2 to 6, the apostles' response to the issue And then we see in verse 7, the after effect of the issue being addressed by the apostles. Now, as we get ready to move into this, I want us to remind ourselves that there are lessons for us in this section of the Word of God. There are lessons here for churches. There are lessons here for organizations. There are lessons here for individuals. So it's worth our time to dig in and look at this a little more closely. So let's begin with looking at verse 1, where we see the issue surfacing. Now, that's a natural thing, that when there is growth, when there are more people, that there are more logistical issues. You know, Burke and Christian are going to be expanding their family. When it was just Janet and Bruce, things were simpler. As you continue to add people and there's growth in the family, the logistical issues 
grow larger. It was really true of us here at Wildwood. When I first came to Wildwood, if you counted the oldest adult down through the youngest baby, there were about 50 of us. That has changed. You know, right now, it's more like there's 1,200 of us from the oldest adult down to the youngest baby. Back when I first came, we had a facility that had 3,600 square feet. Now we have a facility that has 60,000 square feet. When I first came to Wildwood, if you took our nursery department and our toddler department and you just combined them, there would have been like five, maybe six of them, and one of those was mine. And we had maybe one or two people who would have to care for those five or six that we had. You know, right now at Wildwood, we have In our nursery and toddler arena, we have 106 kids, and it takes 58 people to care for those 106 individuals. Whenever you have the growth of more people, you have more logistical issues. And so that's what was happening here. Look at verse 1. It says, the disciples were increasing in number. And while this was happening, a complaint arose. Literally, in the original language, It is a murmuring arose. And I know this would shock all of us in the church that murmuring would arise in the church, but it was happening. And some people started to grumble and they started to complain. They felt neglected. They felt like they were not being appreciated. Things weren't being done fairly. And there was this dissatisfaction that arose in the church. And dissatisfaction has a tendency to lead to dissension in the church. And, you know, dissension is a little bit like if we were to take a container of kerosene and just sort of spread it all around the facility, and then, you know, you have this little spark, and suddenly you have flames going up. Well, this had that potential in the early church. There was grumbling and murmuring going on. By the way, that is a very frequent issue with the people of God. We have a tendency to do that. You really see it in the Old Testament. You know, after the Exodus, when the people are in the wilderness, and over and over again, you know, things weren't happening the way they wanted them to, things weren't fair, this wasn't good, and you have this murmuring, this complaining that takes place. And we have to just admit, as human beings, it's a common response in the human heart to murmur and complain. But it's not a good response. It's a wrong response. I heard a a rather humorous story of a guy, and this guy was stranded alone on a remote, deserted island, and he was there for years. It was a little bit like Tom Hanks in Castaway. And so he's on this island alone for years. There's nobody else there. Very desolate place. Eventually, he is rescued And those who were rescuing him said, could you just kind of give us a tour of the island? We want to see what it was like for you to live here. And as he was walking them around, showing them, you know, this is where I got the water from, this is where I got some of the food from, they came upon three rather crude buildings. And so they said to this guy, who was this castaway, what are those buildings? And he said, well, the first one over there is my house. And the second one over there is my church. And they said to him, well, what's the third building? And he said, 
That's the church I used to go to over there. I mean, we have such a deep tendency, even as an individual human being, to be dissatisfied, to complain, and to murmur. Well, what's happening here in Acts chapter 6? Well, it says there was a complaint on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. If you have an NIV, it would say on the part of the Grecian Jews against the Hebraic Jews. Now, we just need to take a moment, just pause, time out for a second, and let's just try to understand historically what was happening here. We had in the community in Jerusalem, among the Jews, two different groups. First of all, we had the native Hebrews. They were the locals. They were the majority. And then you had the Hellenistic Jews. They were the recent immigrants into Jerusalem. They were the minority. And the native Hebrews really had a focus of their life. They wanted to preserve the Hebrew culture. And when they would have kids, they would give Hebrew names to their children. The Hellenistic Jews were a little bit different. They had chosen to adopt some of the Greek culture, which was predominant in the whole part of the world around which they lived. And they often, when they would have kids, they would give them Greek names. The native Hebrews were were more traditional. Uh, They spoke as their primary language, Hebrew and, and Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew. The Hellenistic Jews were more cosmopolitan. And they spoke as their primary language because of where they really many many times grew up. They spoke Greek. Now, that fact answers some questions for us. It answers the question, why in Israel were there Greek-speaking synagogues, which there were? The reason why there were Greek-speaking synagogues is there was this significant minority group called the Hellenistic Jews. It also tells us why in 200 B.C., something was developed which was called the Septuagint. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And they put that together in 200 BC. Why? Because there was this significant minority called the Hellenistic Jews. Now, here's what's interesting about these two groups. The native Hebrews, when they looked at the other group, they looked at them as second-class compromisers. And yet you had the Hellenistic Jews, when they looked at the native Hebrews, they looked upon them as old-fashioned and inflexible. Now, this isn't so different. This is really like the church today because you have the church and we have, inside the church, we have different groups. We, we come from different backgrounds. We have different economic levels. We are made up of different races, different colors, And when you have that kind of diversity and there's differences, there's the potential for those things to drive us apart or to bind us together. If we become together, we're stronger and better as we blend together. But the potential for both of those things is there. And we learn from verse 1 that this group of the Hellenistic Jews felt like their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And and we don't really know who was distributing things, but we do know that whoever was actually doing the distributing of the items was part of the native Hebrews. That's why the Hellenistic Jews said, well, our widows are getting gypped. This isn't being fair at all. 
Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this that I find interesting. If you have a New American Standard, it says their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving, and the words of food are in italics. And in the New American Standard, when something is in italics, it means it's not in the original text. Literally what it says is they were being overlooked in the daily distribution, or we could say the daily serving. Now, there's one way to understand what was actually happening. One way would say was what was happening is there were a bunch of people who baked goods, food, for distribution to the widows and those who were needy. And so what we had is tables laid out, and there was all this food out there, and what was happening is they were distributing the food to the needy and particularly to the widows. Now, that's one way to understand it. And many even of translators understand it that way. But there's another way to understand what was going on, and I think the context points to it. It's a little bit different. Turn one page to the left in your Bible and just think about what's been going on. Look at chapter number 4 and verses 34 and 35. Remember what was happening? There was not a needy person, verse 34, among them. For all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, the money, and they would lay that money at the apostles' feet, and they would be these funds distributed to each one as any had need. In other words, the money from these proceeds was given to the apostles to be distributed to people as they had need. Now, go back to chapter 6. It says, there was this complaint that arose because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. And I just want you to know there's a particular word that is used here, translated serving, and that is the word diakonia in the original language. It's D-I-A-C-O-N-I-A. They were being overlooked in the daily diakonia. Now, that word is used outside the New Testament of distributing alms to people, distributing money to people. In Acts chapter 11, verse 29, diakonia is used to describe the money that was collected from churches outside of Israel to be given back to those in Jerusalem. Same word, diakonia, is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, chapter 9, verses 1 and 12, to describe the money that was given to support the saints who were needy. Now, look at verse 2. The disciples are going to say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And that word that's translated tables is the is the word for table, but there was a common use of tables in that day. In fact, the same author, Luke, in his gospel, chapter 19, verse 23, takes this word diakonia, rather the word table here, it's the word table being used, and it's translated in the New American Standard, the word table, it's translated there in Luke 19, bank, because that's how tables were often used. Remember how Jesus went into the temple and he was mad? Why was he mad? because there were money changers there, and what did he do? He overturned the tables of the money changers because the table would be used at times as a bank, a a, a place to distribute money to people. So when we see what's going on here, in my opinion, in 
Acts chapter 6, we're talking about the daily distribution of money. And what was happening wasn't they were baking a bunch of food and giving it away, but what they were doing was allowing the needy, allowing the widows to have some funds to meet their daily needs, where they could get some money and they could buy the food that they needed every day. And understanding what's happening in that way explains why this complaint went to the apostles. I mean, if it was just merely food distribution, probably not. But remember, originally the money that is being sold is handed over to whom? To the apostles to be distributed. And so there's a complaint, and it actually comes to the apostles here. And the idea is what's going on is not equitable. Our widows aren't getting the same that their widows are getting. This is unfair. And you have to wonder, with all the historical background, if the Hellenistic Jews weren't having a little suspicion. I mean, are we being treated differently because of who we are? Are we being treated differently because there's some kind of prejudice here? I mean, we we will want this dealt with. And so there was murmuring. By the way, when murmuring begins, Satan smiles because he has a tactic in mind, doesn't he? Well, in verses 2 to 6, we see the apostles' response to this. And remember, churches can learn from this section. Organizations can learn from this section. Leaders can learn from this section. We can all learn from what we see happening here. So we have the apostles' response. The first thing that they do is they acknowledge the problem. They acknowledge the problem. They don't ignore the problem They don't say, well, the problem is probably going to go away. Uh, This will probably blow over. No, they don't do that. They acknowledge the problem. Second thing the apostles do is they act in a timely manner. They act in a timely manner. They don't allow this to fester. They they don't delay. They don't say, oh, we'll we'll just deal with this later. We know there's a problem, but we'll deal with it later. We'll deal with it next week. We'll deal with it next month. We've got our hands full with all kinds of stuff. They acknowledge the problem, and they act in a timely manner. Now, what motivates them to do that? Well, I think what motivated them is the same spirit that Paul communicates when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now, listen to this carefully. Let's all lean in here. This is what he writes to that church. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to stop arguing among yourselves. Think about that church in Dallas. Stop arguing among yourselves. Let there be real harmony so there won't be divisions in the church. And he says to them, I plead with you to be of one mind united in thought and purpose. I think what motivated them to act in a timely manner was the same spirit that Paul was communicating to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 when he said, be diligent, work hard. You've got to make it a priority to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's just impossible to have an effective team if dissension is ignored or if dissension is tolerated. So they acknowledge the problem. They act in a timely manner. In verse 2, they summon the congregation of the disciples. Now, 
Remember, we said at this point in time in the city of Jerusalem, there were probably some 20,000 people who had come to Christ who were making up this brand new church. So in all probability, they didn't call all 20,000 together. That would be a wild congregational meeting. Uh, probably they, they organized maybe a representative from each family or a representative from each house church or a representative from every small group. I don't know how they did it, but at least a representative part of the entire congregation was there. And the third thing that they do in their response is they clarify their priorities. We see that in verse 2, the last part, and in verse 4. Look at verse 2 again. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. He says, they say, it is not desirable. In the original, it basically means it's not fitting. It doesn't fit what we have been called to do. In other words, we can't compromise as leaders, the apostles, our calling because our calling is to give a priority to the word and to prayer. And as we see the New Testament unfolding, that is the priority of leaders in the church. That's the priority that is laid out for the pastors and the elders of the church. Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, who was an emerging young leader in the church, who would also be training other men to be leaders in the church, he writes to him and he says in 1 Timothy 2.1, pray, pray. That's to be a priority. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, pay a close attention to yourself and your teaching persevere in that. Why? Because that is the priority of your calling as a leader. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, be diligent, work really hard at presenting yourself approved to God, accurately handling the word of truth. You see, that's part of the calling of a spiritual leader in the church, priority on the word and prayer. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a passage many of us know, verses 1 and 2, he says, and this is, this is showing how important this is, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's pretty serious stuff. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What were the apostles saying? They were, they were basically saying there's a potential danger here that what is important for us as leaders could be overcome by that which is urgent. In other words, we have a priority that has been given to us as spiritual leaders of the church, and we don't want urgent things to overcome what are important things. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. See, the truth, men and women, is, I don't know if you ever think about this, but the truth is in the church, the leaders cannot address all the physical and emotional needs in the body. They can't do that. Now, there are certain people who would expect the leaders to be able to address all the physical and emotional needs in the body. The leaders can't do that. But that's why ministry is a team game. One reason why God makes you part of a local church 
is that we all have to be involved in the game. It's a team game. If we're going to have all the physical and all the emotional needs met, it's going to take a team of people to pull that off. Now, one of the things that impresses me about them here is as leaders, the apostles were willing to alter the organization and structure in response to needs. And that's what an effective organization does. An effective organization is fluid, not static. And they were willing to make changes. And a lot of times, there's a certain group of people who don't like changes. Oh, we're going to make changes? We're not going to do things the way we used to be? Oh, you know, what's going to happen? And but no, they were willing to do that. And that's important. An organization needs to do that. It needs to be fluid, not static. I want you to notice something else that's not going on here, okay? Don't, don't miss this. The apostles are not saying, look, folks, we're just too good for this job. They're not saying, look, we're too important. They're not saying we're too spiritual than to be working the tables and handing out money to needy people. They're not saying that at all. In fact, in verse 1, we have that word, Diakonia, the daily diakonia of distributing money, that same word is used in verse 4. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the diakonia of the word of God. You see, they're basically saying they're both ministry. Meeting physical needs is ministry. And teaching the word and being involved in prayer They are ministry. They're both ministry. They're both indispensable. It's so important to understand that. Ministry is a team game. What does that really mean? Well, it means that what's important in the church isn't just what happens up front. It's all important. And for those of you who are serving and ministering, I just want you to understand that what you do in ministry is essential to the functioning of this body. So don't think, well, what's important is happen what happens up front. That is ministry, but everything is ministry. And God uses all of that to meet needs. So we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for what you're doing. And for those of you who aren't serving, please get mobilized, which is actually what happens next. The fourth thing they do is they mobilize others. We see that in verse 3 and verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 3 again. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Well, this found approval with the whole congregation, verse 5, and so they chose these seven individuals. Verse 6, and they were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now, I don't know if, if you've been a leader, a leader of a ministry or even a leader of an organization, or this is even true if you are leading a family, but as a leader, if we over control, what's the message we send to the people that we're leading? Only we are capable. You're not really capable. Only we are capable. That's why we're going to control everything and over-control everything. 
And that's why, men and women, delegation is essential. It's, it's essential in a family. It's essential in an organization. It's an essential in the church. What I find interesting here is that they have qualifications even for physical serving in the church. Isn't that interesting? And he lists a number of them. He says, number one, you need to select seven men. Now, there are other ministry roles for women in the New Testament, but here, for whatever reason, I don't really understand. They said, we want you to choose seven men. And they should be seven men who are among you. They should be believers in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, they should not only be believers in Jesus Christ, but they should be those who have a good reputation when it comes to their character, when it comes to their conduct, they should have a good reputation. A fourth thing is that they should be solid spiritually, full of the Holy Spirit, characterized by the Holy Spirit in their life. And then fifthly, they should possess wisdom. They should be characterized by wisdom in their life. What is wisdom? It's the ability to apply God's truth to everyday life situations. Those are the kinds of people you need to put in charge of this task, they say. And what I find fascinating to me is there in verse 5, with these seven guys that are listed, they all have Greek names. Now, think about the dispute that's going on. You have the Hellenistic Jews who felt like they're really being somewhat cheated by the Hebraic Jews. And so when the church decides how to solve the problem, they say, you know, the best way to deal with this is let's have seven Hellenistic Jewish guys deal with this problem. Shows a lot of sensitivity and wisdom on their part. And in verse 6, they are brought before the apostles, and the apostle lays, apostles lay hands on them, which did two things. Number one, it granted authority to them, but also reminded them they were still accountable back to the apostles for the ministry that they were doing. Delegation, men and women, is essential. It is essential. And what I've found over the years is a lot of times people don't even know how to get started on delegating. They go, yeah, yeah, I want to delegate, but I really don't even know how to do it. Well, there's lots of different ways that you can do it. But I want to share with you just a very simple thing I call the one, two, three, four process. This is a great little way to begin to understand how to delegate something. The one, two, three, four process works like this. Number one, you do it. Number two, you do it while they watch you do it. Number three, they do it while you watch them doing it. And then number four, they do it alone. Wonderful process to begin to delegate to individuals and to people. You can even work with this with your kids. It works really, really well. And then, of course, we hope that they employ the one, two, three, four process on the next level. Well, in verse 7, we see the after effect of all of these things. Notice what happens as this is all being dealt with. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And notice this. This is really cool. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. There was renewed blessing, there was expanding ministry. Now, what I want us to do before we, we talk a little bit about some life response that we can have individually, I want to talk about some lessons that I think that are built into this section we've looked at. Lesson number one, no church is problem-free. 
Don't you just feel a little bit better? I mean, sometimes we get so, we say there's problems there. Hey, no church is problem free. There's always going to be friction. There's always going to be the potential for factions. And that's why we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It takes work to maintain unity in a church. Second lesson, a church must adjust as it grows. And again, change is uncomfortable for some people. We've got to do it differently. Wait a minute, I don't want to do it differently. I want to keep doing it the way we've done. No, no, no. As the church grows, change must come and we must adjust. And then there's a third lesson I want to highlight, and I think this is the most encouraging one of all, and that is churches with problems and issues can still be powerfully affected. I find that encouraging because we've got problems and we've got issues. But a church with problems and issues can still be powerfully effective. How do you, how do, you do that? You don't fixate on the problems. You don't fixate on the issues. You focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to honor him at all times. Now, having just summarized those lessons, I want to talk a little bit about some life response. This is what I can do, you can do, starting today, tomorrow, this next week. Number one, don't be a murmurer. Don't be a murmurer. God doesn't like murmurers. Let's not be a murmurer. And what does that really mean? It means that if there's an issue or a problem that comes up, and there will be an issue, and there will be a problem, we need to do three things. Number one, you take it to the Lord. Don't run off and start telling 16 other people. You take it to the Lord in prayer. Secondly, having done that, just to make sure that our mind is right and our perspective is where it needs to be, then humbly go to the individual with which there is a problem and issue and talk to them about it. And then third, if you are unable to resolve that issue, ask for help from a leader. But don't be a murmurer. Second life response is this. We need to utilize the apostle's model when issues arise and they will arise. That means we acknowledge the problem, we act in a timely manner, we clarify our priorities, and ultimately we mobilize other people. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in a closing song, and I want to lead us in some prayer. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. I am always amazed at how real it is and how practical it is. And Lord, we realize that, that we're a church that has issues and we have problems. We have them today. We're going to have them tomorrow. I pray you would protect us from falling into the trap that many believers have in past history of becoming murmurers. Let's not be like that. Convict us of us of that when we are like that, Father. And then we just pray we can put these principles into, into action because ultimately our goal, our motivation is we want you to shine through us in this world so that when people look at us, they might see Jesus Christ. Oh, that's who we want to honor. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.